Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. 1959 was the year that Vince Lombardi became head coach for the Green Bay Packers. Lombardi, as he took over the Packers, wanted to build a winning team and a winning culture, and so he knew he had to be good on the basics. They had to do the basics well if they were to have any chance of truly being good. So at the first practice before the Packer team, Lombardi held up a football looked at the team and said, Men, this is a football. To which wide receiver Max McGee said, Slow down, coach, you're going too fast. (laughs) (laughs) In another sport and another coach, that understanding of doing the basics, basics well was just as keen. It was down the road from us years ago, John Wooden, the head coach of the UCLA Bruins basketball team, was meeting with his team for the first practice of the year. I think the first-year players must have been bewildered and befuddled. Here they were listening to this coach who would become a legend, ready to play for him, and he began the practice by explaining to them how to put on their socks. Pastor Philip, you pointed me in the direction of that illustration, and I thought, how to put on your socks? Wooden would explain, if they don't put on their socks appropriately and well, their socks will bunch up and they will end up with blisters on their heels and between their toes. So they have to know that right. They have to do it well. I looked it up. Wooden continued to preach that before every practice and every game. Put your socks on right. Basic. Or I think of Admiral William McRaven. Admiral McRaven, 36-year Navy vet, SEAL, known for his exceptional work ethic, for that for which he stands, his consistency, gave the commencement address at University of Texas in Austin back in 2014, an address that by now must have been viewed by millions of people. I want to read you a piece of the address that McRaven spoke to these seniors graduating in all kinds of fields, eager to get out and make a difference in the world. Here's what McRaven said to them. Every morning in basic SEAL training, my instructors would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they would inspect was your bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly on top of the rack. Rack, that's Navy lingo for bed. It was a simple task, mundane at best. But every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened seals. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. 
By the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that in life, little things matter. If you can't do the little things right, you will never do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, that you made, and a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. If you want to change the world, start out by making your bed. Footballs, socks, beds. It doesn't get much more basic than that. And yet these astute minds, these minds that rose to the top in their respective fields, knew one simple secret. If you get away from the basics, you're in trouble. If you want to succeed, learn to do the basics well. So we're talking about spiritual life. And in our spiritual life, in our spiritual journey, it is no different. For that reason, we're going to take five Sabbaths together, five Sabbaths in which we go back to basics, the basic realities of what it means to walk this journey with Jesus. Believing, turning, listening, speaking, and doing. Five weeks together, and today we begin with believing. Now, if we're going to talk about the basic of believing, I don't think there's a better passage, a better book in Scripture to which we could turn than the Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John is all about believing. That's core to why he wrote the Gospel. In fact, I want to read to you just a brief little paragraph, almost, not quite, but almost at the end of the Gospel of John where John gives us the very clear purpose as to why he wrote the letter. Biblical writers don't often do that. In fact, they rather seldom do that. Just spell out, here's why I'm writing. But John does it. And I want you to listen to what he says the purpose is for which he wrote the gospel. John chapter 20, starting with verse 30. This is what John says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is very clear. It's almost as though he's engaging in conversation with the reader. And the reader's asking, why did you write that? There were three others after all. And John has a clear and ready answer for that. He says, I wrote this. I structured it in such a way that would lead you to believe. That's my purpose in writing. In fact, I have an interesting assignment, a task for you to try sometime. Sometimes sit down with the Gospel of John. And take a highlighter in hand, and every time you come across the word belief or believe or believing in the Gospel of John, highlight it. By the time you're done reading the Gospel of John, you will have highlighted over a hundred times. Because he just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back to this issue of belief. In fact, he does something more than that. The other gospel writer said that Jesus performed miracles. John does not use that word miracles. He says Jesus performed signs. 
Why does he call them signs? Because signs point to something. And the signs for John point to the evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be so that you might believe. It's his whole purpose in writing. Now, if we say, okay, if we're going to talk about the Christian basic of believing, then the Gospel of John is probably the best place to go in Scripture. Then I would add to that, there is within the Gospel of John a personality, a character, which I think is the person we have to turn to in John's Gospel if we're going to talk about belief. And that's a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I probably should have named this sermon Nick at Night (laughs) because that's what happens here in this chapter. I want to ask you, as we read through the story of Nicodemus, just keep track in your mind of the number of times John talks about believing in this story. So John 3, starting with verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can anyone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. All those who do evil hate the light and will not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But those who live by the truth come into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Nicodemus was a good man. Nicodemus was a religious man. Nicodemus was a religious leader. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, in our parlance, Pharisee has become a negative word. It actually has become a put-down. Such would not have been the case in the world of Jesus. 
A Pharisee was someone who was at the top of the heap in terms of good people, righteous people, people concerned about obeying the law, about being pillars to society. Those were Pharisees. That's who Nicodemus was. But there was a hole in his soul that nothing had filled. There was something that gnawed at him. All of his religious rituals didn't satisfy that deep hunger. You say to me, Randy, how do you know that? Well, I'll tell you this. Had he been satisfied, had he been at peace, there is no way he would have been found speaking to an itinerant Galilean peasant rabbi. Something in what he had heard Jesus say had spoken to him to the degree that he got up at night, slipped into the dim and dancing shadows down the street, into the garden, and onto a bench in front of Jesus to find out how can I fill the hole in my soul. People have wondered. They've wondered, why did he come at night? Some have said, well, he came at night because he didn't want to be seen. He didn't want to be seen in dialogue with this rabbi. It would damage his standing in the community. And that's true, but I don't think that's the reason. Others have said, well, he, he came at night because that's the time when matters of religion and faith were discussed. The day's work was done. Time to sit around the fire, and now the leaders can really talk, and others can gather around and can listen to what they say. That's true, but I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason Nicodemus comes at night is because he is torn apart inside between faith and doubt. You have to remember, after all, that in John's Gospel... John is very thoughtful about how he uses language and imagery and metaphor and how he tells stories. Even in this very passage we just read, John assigns a deep spiritual meaning to light and darkness. The fact that John highlights that Nicodemus came at night is almost without doubt a way of John saying he comes because he's still in the darkness. He's still wrestling, still grappling with what to do with this rabbi. But he's come to maybe expose himself to the light. So Nicodemus comes and starts by saying, Now, we know, we, 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 we know we know you must be from God. I mean, come on, look at what you're doing. We know. Now, I find that word, that Greek word, know, to be of interest. I want to read you from, from a scholarly source the sense of that Greek word. When, when Nicodemus says, we know that, listen to what it is. That is, to know or have knowledge about someone or something normally as acquired through reflection or Thinking. So this is a cognitive process, an intellectual process. And Nicodemus sits down in front of Jesus and says, we've thought about this, we've wrestled with this, we've discussed this, and we've come to the conclusion, you've got to be from God. You must be from Aren't you from God? I mean, come on, look at what you're doing. We're sure you must be. Are you? 
And Jesus cuts Nicodemus to the quick. Because rather than answering that question, he takes him back to basics. He, in essence, says, Nicodemus, before we deal with those things, let me just talk to you about footballs and socks and beds and the new birth. You need to start with a new life from within. That's where it begins. That's what must happen. Now, it depends what version you read it in can be rendered the new birth or born again or born from above, but they're all driving at that basic that says it must begin deep and inside as a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then Jesus expresses surprise. I love the way that Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message, renders the words Jesus says to, Jesus, uh, to Nicodemus. Just one line. Here it is, verse 10. You're a respected teacher of Israel, and you don't know these basics? You're coaching the team, and you don't know about tackling? You're coaching the team, and you don't know about free throws? You're a Navy SEAL, you don't know how to make your bed? Seriously? Nicodemus, you're a teacher, and yet you've forgotten the basics. And the rest of what Jesus has to say drives him back toward that basic. It is summarized in the most elegant, immortalized language in one verse. It's a verse we all know, and if we were all quoting the same version, we could quote it in unison. But today I want to ask you just to listen to it. Those familiar words of John 3.16. As Jesus summarizes this basic of belief and how the entire plan of God works. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. I see three truths in those simple words. Simple. The entire plan of God contained in 25 Greek words, or if you read it in the English of the TNIV, 26 words. The entire plan. Truth number one, God loves the world. God loves the world. Now we have to understand exactly what Jesus is saying here. And in order to do that, I want to take you to a New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, as he talks about that Greek word that in English is translated world, the cosmos. God loves the cosmos. I want you to listen to what that means in the context of John's gospel. Here's what Carson writes. It is extremely important to understand what John means by the word world. Except for a few instances where the world refers to the physical earth, the word always has a negative value. The world in John is a symbol for all that is in rebellion against God, all that is loveless and disobedient, all that is selfish and sinful. When we read, therefore, in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, we are not to think that God's love is being praised by reference to the world's bigness, but by reference to its badness. This ugly, sinful, rebellious world 
This sewer of infidelity, this glut of endless selfishness, this habitation of cruelty, this lover of violence, this promoter of greed, this maker of idols, this world God loved and loved so much that he sent his son. God so loved the world. And that world includes you. I don't care what you did in the past. I don't care what you did last week. I don't care what you did this morning. You're part of the world. God loves you. Don't gloss over the fact that in making that statement, Jesus is saying, and John is writing, the answer to a question which haunts many in those quiet moments, in those dark times, in those empty spaces, knowing what our lives look look like from the inside out, we sometimes wonder, if I were known, would I be loved? And Jesus says, God so loved the world in all its badness. And that includes you. Arthur Miller was a playwright, maybe best known for his play, Death of a Salesman. Arthur Miller fell in love with and married the woman who was, no doubt, at that point in time, Hollywood's most acclaimed actress. name was Marilyn Monroe. Miller and Monroe got married, but over a period of time, that love that had been so intense and that chemistry that had bonded them so deeply together began to sour, and Marilyn began to spiral downward into depression and despair and to a world of drugs. In order just to survive, life got truly dark. There came a moment described by Arthur Miller in his autobiography, Time Bends, A moment when Marilyn had yet one more time managed to persuade a doctor to give her another shot. When she was finally able to fall asleep, that Arthur Miller describes standing there looking at her as she slept. I want you to listen to Arthur Miller's words as he describes that moment. He says, I found myself straining to imagine Miracles. What if she were to wake? And what if I were able to say, God loves you, darling. And what if she were able to believe it? How I wished I still had my religion and she hers. Fame Fortune, desperation, and then turning to say, am I loved? Do you know what I wish? I wish that Nicodemus had scooted over on the bench and made room for Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe and you. So that Jesus could have said, 
God so loved the world. And Arthur, that includes you. Marilyn, that includes you. And then his eye would fall on you. And he would say, and that definitely includes you. That's the first truth. God loves the world. But there's a second truth in this passage. And that truth is this. God expressed his love. He expressed it. It didn't remain as a feeling inside, as a sentimental experience. It didn't remain as a thought. It didn't remain as something that, that he said is part of my being. It was not sufficient just to love because true love has to express itself. God expressed his love, and he expressed it by giving the gift that outgives every other gift, the gift of his son. It's a gift that Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians, had to coin a word to describe. He didn't even know how to put it into words. So he finally just said, thanks be to God for, for his indescribable gift. God expressed his love. Now, once again, understanding a word will be very helpful. Just like understanding the word world is helpful in the first point. I want you to understand the second word. I, I go again to a scholarly source, New Testament scholar Robert Mounts, where he's talking about that word that so many of us know, though we've never maybe even taken a Greek language class, that word agape. Listen to what Mounts writes. The heart of the gospel, he said, is not a philosophical observation about the character of God as love, but a declaration of that redemptive love in action. For God so loved that he gave. The Greek verb is agapao. It is common to discuss three Greek words for love, eros, philia, and agape. The first is used of passionate desire, not found in the New Testament, and the second of a fondness expressed in close relationships. The third word, agape, was rather weak and colorless in secular Greek, but in the New Testament it is infused with fresh significance and becomes the one term able to denote the highest form of love. And then comes a sentence I love. Bible scholar A.M. Hunter highlights the significance of agape by noting that while eros is all take and philia is give and take, agape is all give. That's what Jesus says. For God so loved that he gave. He couldn't keep from giving. That was the nature of his love. But do you know what the truth is? The truth is the familiarity of this verse, the familiarity of these concepts causes us to too quickly pass it by and to not linger long enough to take in what it really means. Tony Campolo, that preacher and sociologist, tells the story of sitting with a group of thinkers. A group of men, he said, would have been thought of as elite. 
These thinkers sat and talked, and as they talked, they, as they fell into that conversation and discussed their, their thoughts and their conversation turned to religion, and it wasn't friendly. They began to talk about evangelicals and Christians and, and some of the things that they do and some of the things that are in the press, and Campolo found himself getting more upset and more turned off by what was being said, and finally said, I couldn't hold back, so I just kind of lit into the group, and I said, look, we're not all that way. We're not all that way. We don't all do dumb and stupid things. We're not. And suddenly there was an image that flashed through his mind that he had seen at a football game of somebody holding up the sign of a Bible text. And he said, we're not all like that guy that shows up at the Super Bowl and holds up a Bible text. We're thinkers. I want to read you in Campolo's words what came next. When I finished my rabid declaration... One of the men at the table took the pipe he was smoking out of his mouth, set it down, and said, Interesting you should mention that. Three years ago, I was watching the Super Bowl. It was just before halftime when the Cowboys kicked an extra point. This has been a long time ago. It was just before... <laughs> <clears throat> It was just before halftime when the Cowboys kicked an extra point. Behind the goalpost was that man you were talking about. He held up a sign that read, John 1.12. I didn't have anything else to do during halftime. So I reached up on the bookshelf of the den, pulled off my old Bible, and opened it to John 1.12, just out of curiosity. When I opened it, I found some old notes from a Bible talk that I'd heard at summer camp many, many years before when I was a teenager. I read over those notes and remembered what I had forgotten and forsaken. I got down on my knees there and then and gave my life back to Jesus. It's easy, isn't it, to become so used to it that we lose the significance of what it's saying. Maybe it's time to take the book off and the shelf and blow off the dust and re-experience that gift again. God loves the world. God expressed His love. And the third truth out of that passage the blessings of that gift come to those who believe. The blessings of that gift come to those who believe. You notice the words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whoever believes, the blessings of that gift Come to those who believe. I have to, one last time, just read the Greek word's meaning. We've talked about world. We've talked about love. Now we talk about believe. Listen to this. To believe in Christ is to accept and love Him. The Greek expression, pistuoes, to believe into, carries the sense of placing one trust into or completely on someone. In other words, it is not a mental assent, just saying, yeah, I think that's true. This is an act of placing one's faith and one's trust in Jesus. 
1859. June of 1859, hundreds, actually thousands of people flocked to Niagara Falls. And when they came, they all came. Statesmen and congresspeople and, and writers, newspaper editors, professors. In fact, by the time everything was over and done, even the president of the United States himself came to see what happened there. Because what happened there was a little Frenchman, five foot, 540 pounds, stretched a 1,300-foot rope across the gorge beneath the falls, stretched it between the two sides, and announced, I'm going to walk the tightrope from the United States to Canada and back again. And the people showed up, believing they were coming to watch this crazy little Frenchman kill himself. When the moment came, he took the balancing pole in his hand, and he stepped out onto the rope. It is said that people fainted. Others stretched and craned their necks, leaning forward to catch a glimpse of when he would go flying off the rope. Pole in hand, a step at a time, he began the journey. Got to the middle of the journey, sat down, lowered a rope to the maid of the mist that was parked below him, pulled up a bottle of wine and imbibed on the rope. And then he got up and continued his trek across the rope. Got, got safely to the other side. Over the next hours and days, he began to do other kinds of things. He brought one of those large old cameras that they tended to stick their heads in to take pictures, balanced it on the rope, and took pictures of the crowds on both sides. He brought a stove, prepared breakfast, ate breakfast on the rope. He walked at night, blindfolded, somersaulted across the rope. It was unbelievable what happened. It is even reported that at one point, he brought out a wheelbarrow. said, I'm going to push the wheelbarrow across. How many of you believe I can do it? And everybody waved their hands. He pointed to a man in the front and said, get in. <laughs> and the man said, no. He said, you said you believed. He said, I do, but I'm not getting in that wheelbarrow. <laughs> That's the word. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Saying, Nicodemus, get in the wheelbarrow. Trust your life to me. But you know what? That's what Jesus is saying to you today. That's the invitation he's making to you. To believe. Get in the wheelbarrow. I'm going to invite you to do that. I want to speak to two groups of people this morning, just two. Not speaking to everybody here, but I am speaking to two groups of people who are like Nicodemus. The first group is religious. You went to religious schools, you work at a religious institution, you come to what I hope is a religious church. Religious people. But somehow that basic of true and full getting into the wheelbarrow may not have happened. Maybe you signed on the dotted line, but you signed in pencil. You can smudge it. Erase it. I have a dear friend named Larry Thomas. Larry Thomas was sitting in All Souls Church in London, England. Richard Buse was preaching. Richard Buse, who's preached here in our church on different occasions. And Larry said, that day, Richard spoke to me. He said, some of you have signed 
on the dotted line with Jesus in pencil. Today, I'm going to invite you to do it in pen. And Larry said, that's what I did. And just this week, Larry texted me this, Randy, I think that day in all souls saved and established my faith. Without it, I might be on some rubbish heap of legalism. So I want to speak to that group today. You've signed, but it's been in pencil. Today I invite you to do it in pen. I want to speak to a second group. You're like Nicodemus in the sense that you're there, it's night, you're hovering between belief and unbelief. I want to ask you to consider stepping into the wheelbarrow, putting your faith fully in Jesus. In the pew rack in front of you, that hymnal rack, there's some little cards. They look like business cards, just like this. Say, back to basics on one side. Would you take those out? Would you just make certain that anyone and everyone on your row who wants one gets one? On the back is a simple statement that says, Today I place my faith in Jesus. And then there are pens in the rack. Not pencils, pens. If you sense the Spirit of God moving in your heart today, and you want to make that step, believing, placing faith in, getting in the wheelbarrow, just sign your name and date the card. And then I want to ask you to take this card. I want you to tape it to your bathroom mirror, to your computer screen, put it in your wallet, take a picture of it, and make it your screensaver on your phone to remind you that today, in this place, you stepped into the wheelbarrow. But I have one other favor to ask. If you're part of the group that is doing that for the first time today, there's a second card. You see the green top peeking out of the rack in front of you. It says, Welcome on it. We don't want you to take this step and take this journey alone. So if you've taken that for the first time today, would you just put your contact info on the front? And then on the back, check that line that says, I'm beginning a relationship with Jesus. Those of us on the pastoral staff would love to come alongside you and support you in that journey. And then you can drop this card off in the Welcome Center on your way out. And we will be in contact with you. And at the Welcome Center, they'll give you a little book to help on the journey, simply entitled Steps to Christ. It's a classic I've read and reread and will help guide your footsteps. I hope you sense and listen to the Spirit of God speaking to your heart today. Because the truths are very simple. God loves the world, and that includes you. God expressed His love in the gift of His Son. And those who want to receive the blessings of that gift do so by believing in Him.